Welcome to the Vaccination Station. My name is Dave, and today I am speaking with Director Scott Hamilton-Kennedy. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's an honor. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Scott, let's start by getting to know you. Can you tell me three things about yourself that you think the audience would find interesting? Oh, boy. Um, three things. Uh, okay, my father was a pretty big, significant uh, civil rights attorney in the 60s and, and 70s and beyond. So he represented uh, Huey Newton and the Black Panthers. Uh, he worked on the Chicago 7 famous uh, uh, political trial um, and represented many other people uh, that were um, sort of being taken advantage of, let's say, by by uh, our government and di by, by different degrees. Um, and he was, it was very important to him. And I think that work influenced my, influenced my love of storytelling because as a, as a trial lawyer, he was a storyteller and also skills as a interviewer and cross-examination. Ex so as we get into the interview, the interview with Robert Kennedy Jr., I was definitely channeling uh, my father a little bit there. Something else that you're uh, about me, uh, I started in music videos. That's not usually where people expect a documentarian to come from. So hopefully some of your listeners would have seen uh, doc, uh, uh, seen music videos like I Can See Clearly Now by Jimmy Cliff. That was a pretty big international hit. And then the last one is I didn't know science needed to be defended, I guess is the one I'll tell you. I, I, I was stumbling along through life in 20, let's call it 2013, 2014, before my previous film. And just, I loved science, but I didn't think about it much. And I was just taking it for granted that my, our, my water was clean and that, that the food I was eating had been checked and safe and vaccines worked for me and my kids and all these different things. And then I was approached to make a movie about food and and um, food and science. And I went and researched and found the GMO controversy, very similar to the anti-vax controversy, that there were a lot of people, especially privileged liberals, who um, had been sold a bill of goods that GMOs were poison. And uh, that became Food Evolution, uh, my previous film that Neil deGrasse Tyson was a narrator on and is now an executive producer on Shot in the Arm, a film we'll probably be talking about most today. So yeah, I guess that would be the third piece that I didn't know science needed to, be, needed to be defended and it sure does in the United States and really globally. Thank you so much for that. That was really interesting. So where did you study and how did you enter the film industry? Sure, I did not go to film school. I grew up in Berkeley, California. That's the Bay Area of, of California. So San Francisco, Berkeley, Oakland, Bay Area. And I loved filmmaking. I loved movies at a young age, but I wasn't one of those people that picked up a camera and made things on my own. And I was recommended to go to a liberal arts college to get life experience and story experience and a well-rounded education on the human condition. And, um, and I did, so I studied English and theater at Skidmore College in upstate New York. And still barely made anything. I guess I was directing plays, so that did help that storytelling side. But I got lucky after graduating that a, a music video was shot at my parents' house, their summer house on the beach, 
corny song called Seasons Change. And I don't even know if I can remember the artist. And I got my first job at this music video production company as a production assistant. And that led was my only staff job I've ever had. I was there for probably only six months, but worked on a ton of music videos and then went freelance, still working as a production assistant, production coordinator, assistant director. And then I started directing music videos. So that's how I came to it through doing more than schooling. What advice would you give to someone who is considering a career in the production side of film or TV? Sure. Um, make stuff. <laughs> um, the good, I, I, I teach documentary, I guess, filmmaking, but specifically documentary in what are, what has come to be called master classes before that organization uh, started making those other uh, successful master classes online, a master classes basically a person from the industry coming in and teaching a class, uh, a one-off class. So I teach a three-hour master class on documentary filmmaking. And one of the things I start with is the good news and the bad news about documentary production, really film production in 2023, is that the means of production continue to get less expensive, so more accessible and higher quality, so that uh, a smartphone has higher resolution a higher resolution camera than the, the cameras I used on my first three films <laughs> that went, that were theatrically released, two were shortlisted for an Oscar and one was nominated. I mean, it's crazy, played in movie theaters. And that same smartphone is a complete studio and, distri and distribution tool. It's incredible, absolutely incredible. So you can make something of high quality and reach an audience with just this single piece of equipment. I wouldn't recommend editing on it, but you can. So it's that's remarkable. The hard part is, do you have something to say and will you do it well, right? So do you have a story to tell? Do you have an opinion on the human condition that is going to be interesting and, and engaging to an audience? And will you, will you tell it in an entertaining and surprising and honest and engaging way? That's the hard part. So that one I can't help you. I can't help somebody with, but I can help them. It's helpful to even know that that's the goal, right? So go watch other movies you love and see how they did that. And then the old adage, mediocre artists borrow, great artists steal. Steal like heck. That's not plagiarism. You're not lifting the steady cam shot from Goodfellas you're if you even if you tried to do that same shot it's not the same movie so and that might not be the best version of it because you that could be a little bit obvious but anything just a way a movie made you feel study it over and over again where was the camera what did they do with sound how did the how uh what was the writing like where were the what was the silence what did they do with with special effects or anything to make you feel that way and write it down and then go try and replicate it that is really fascinating. Thank you. So as a film industry educator, where do you speak and, and who do you speak to? Sure. It, uh, wherever they'll take me or my schedule kind of allows. I just did it at my alma mater, Skidmore College in Saratoga Springs, upstate New York. I don't get to do it that often between schedule and I don't like push that out there. So a lot of, not a lot of people know, oh, let's bring Scott in. But I've taught all over all over the United States at different colleges, high schools, but also libraries and museums. 
and had audiences from 10 year olds to 85 year old retirees. And uh, so it's not just film students and it's really fun. Those audiences are sometimes the best because they get in three hours, this very intense, unique view on storytelling. And, you know, they might walk away and just have enjoyed the education of it and will look at documentaries in a new way, or they walk away and they might want to make their social media posts a little bit more interesting, or they might want to take their camera and say, I'm going to make a three minute documentary on whoever it is that could be a, a homeless person in their neighborhood. It could be somebody who owns a unique business and the business is struggling. So um, yeah, it's wherever they'll, wherever they'll have me. I haven't taught in Australia or, or New Zealand yet. So I don't know. What do you think? We do have quite a, a thriving little uh, independent film industry down here. In addition to obviously the, the commercial one and mm-hmm. some surprisingly big movies have been made down here, normally shot on places like the, the gold coast where there's a, a very strong, industry and also lots of infrastructure and and uh, lots of people already working in that industry so there have been some big movies shot down here but yes the independent film scene here is is quite robust and here in south australia where i live i live in in adelaide which is known as the city of festivals here in australia and yeah. every year there is a, a a big big arts festival that tends to see quite a bit of contribution from local and international uh, f- film producers from uh, docos to shorts and and this kind of thing so it's it's really great to see that sort of thing thriving in a in a country with a pretty small population like ours i think we're only about 26 million but um but you know we get our stuff out there we we make a contribution oh yeah you've 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 had some of the greatest filmmakers we have on in the history of film so well done so we're going to be talking about your documentary. And of course, documentaries don't have the, the glamour and the, the sexiness of Hollywood movies. The average person doesn't you know, look at their local cinema schedule and go, oh, I wonder if any great documentaries are screening this week. But documentaries can be very powerful and influential in their own right, arguably more powerful and influential because they are based on facts, on history, on reality, and on experiences that the average person can relate to. And I think that is a a, a very significant force, and it's one, one of the things that gives documentaries their, their power. But they also need to be presented in the right way. So you need a, an excellent director. Now, my favorite documentary makers are Werner Herzog and Adam Curtis. You're no doubt familiar with both of those. Are there any documentary makers that you particularly admire or, or that you draw inspiration from? Sure. I Actually, I don't know Adam's work. Uh, can you tell me about Adam? Sorry. Yeah. Adam Curtis is a British f- filmmaker. He made a fascinating documentary series. He started producing it in the 90s, and he only finished it, I think, in the early 2000s or maybe a bit in the 2010s. And it is about culture and politics and economics, touches on postmodernism, looks particularly at the forces of British and American politics and how they were shaped by, by culture and new philosophies. And he looks at the way that this has changed society and uh, human perceptions of of 
of life and art and wow. and the way we interact with each other. Um, it's difficult to sort of pin down. But one of the things he does is he's notable for using only archival footage and he narrates his own work and he uses purely wow. archival footage to to convey his message and the way he cuts and, and splices and intertwines with it is absolutely riveting. So, yeah, if you punch Adam Curtis into IMDb or Wikipedia, uh, you will be yeah. very well rewarded. He's done Thank some you. excellent work, particularly on the on the way um, neoliberalism shaped the the politics of the US and the UK, particularly in the, in the Thatcher and Reaganite eras, for example, and how this changed attitudes in, in society, leading into new approaches to industry and technology. He's basically showing how intertwined it all is and, and how we've we've changed as a result. So yeah, really, really powerful wow. stuff. Yeah. I will definitely I will definitely take a look. Um and I could do one sidebar on Werner uh Herzog. Um uh I had the great honor of being nominated uh for an Oscar with him in 2008. So we got to we got to meet a little bit. And um, he saved his compliment for the movie, like literally to the end of the Oscars. I was like going home. He leaned in. He goes, so it was a very good, very good film. It's very important film. I don't do a very good Werner Herzog, but we'll continue. Uh, so I have two one, uh, Werner Herzog stories I love telling that I actually talk about when, uh, when teaching. One is he was, at a, he was at a panel on documentaries and people were talking about the um, fly on the wall as a concept, right? So fly on the wall for your listeners means... As a, as a documentary point of view, that means the documentarian is just there as a fly on the wall capturing the truth. And it's like, it's never really been a true thing because you're doing all these other influences. And I'll get into my my definition of a documentary in a second after the Werner Herzog stories um, that my definition is it's an adaptation of the truth. So, and people are saying, oh yes, you must be a fly on the wall. And everybody's agreeing on stage and Werner Herzog takes the microphone and goes, I don't want to be a, I don't want to be a fly on the wall. I want to be a wasp and I want to sting you, <laughs> a wasp and I want to sting you. And I was like, yeah, that's great. Um, as his other one is, uh, if if you want to really look at the truth, you know, go read the yellow pages. You know, if that's the if you want to have the verifiable truth, and that's boring as hell. Uh, the other crazy one that is is not necessarily hundred percent of a compliment to to the the professor Werner who is brilliant and i can't believe how many films he's made don't know how he does it so fast because i am slow uh, and patient but he I, this was this one i saw live at a q a caves of forgotten dreams or something like that no i'm mixing it see i'm mixing his titles they all sound the same and there was these beautiful cave drawings that were found and it was i think it was his first 3d film and there were albino little tiny about albino alligators found in this cave presented as if found in this cave. And you're wondering if they're albino because there was the threat of a nuclear site near the caves that could threaten them and possibly threaten the history of the caves. Forgive me, you huge Werner Herzog fans, if I'm describing this incorrectly, it'll fix. So somebody asked him, well, where did those little albino alligators go? What was the what was the story behind them? It was really powerful. That like did the nuclear waste like cause them to be albino? He goes, Oh no, we threw those in from New Orleans. I'm like, I'm sorry, what? So that I couldn't do, but 
I, that is a little bit of, a, of, of crossing a line for me in terms of what is truth. And, and I forgive me, Werner, if I'm not getting that story right. And there was some more nuance there, but it doesn't matter. He is an artist and he's very brave and he doesn't, he didn't hide behind it. He just told us right there. So I can't, I try my best to not cross that line of truth. So back to my definition, the definition of a documentary is the adaptation of the truth. The reason I like that is it does two things for me. One is it removes some of the preciousness of fly on the wall or that you just have to not get involved and let it happen. It's all an adaptation. The subject you follow, the people, how which subjects you're going to follow, where you put the camera, how many days you shoot. I mean, just it's a laundry list of all these decisions you're making that obviously it's an adaptation, but it's an adaptation of the truth. So I want to be able to stand by at the end of it and have a historian, have the people involved in it, very important, look at the film and go, oh yeah, that's what happened, right? He didn't include everything. He can't include everything. Again, that's the, that's the phone book or, or a 24-hour security camera. It could be your version of a, of a documentary that's not storytelling. So that's my, my definition. Now back to your original question, forgive me for these sidebars. Uh, documentarians who have influenced me, oh my goodness, there's so many. Uh, the Maisel brothers and, and salesmen, the Bible salesmen in the early 1920s, just brilliant, Verite, uh, um, uh, Harlan County, USA. Um, I could not have made the garden without that. Um, but then there's also the an equal uh, influence on the garden would be the scripted series, The Wire. You know, we were watching that nonstop while editing um, my second film, The Garden. And three years later, after it had been out in the world, I got through a friend that that uh, Ed Burns, the co-creator of The Wire, had seen The Garden. He said, oh yeah, it's a lot like The Wire. I was like, oh my God, that's the greatest compliment I could ever get. So do you know The Wire? The the, the, the scripted series? Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, uh, and then, yeah, there's so many, there's so many other wonderful filmmakers out there that I'm going to forget as I sit here, but every year I'm, I'm, I'm being introduced to, to a new one. I just saw Bobby Wine about the presidential run in Uganda just yesterday, and that's up for, uh, you know, awards consideration this year. And it's, it's absolutely brilliant and, and heartbreaking. So there's, there's new films every year, filmmakers every year too. I really appreciate your observation about the the line of between subjectivity and objectivity in in the documentarian process because you're, you're right it's um it's impossible to say I am simply producing what is there and I am not affecting the content in any way at all even if you just sat there with a handheld camera and pointed it at everything that you could see from where you you were sitting you are still making decisions that affect the way the media is presented. You have chosen the time, the position, the angle, the light, the the medium. You know, all of these things, however subtle, will affect the final outcome and they will affect people's interpretation and understanding. People might say some of these things, they, they're not going to affect it that much. Surely they won't affect it enough to, to change people's understanding or perception of it but they can and they do because of the way humans pick up so very quickly on visual and audio cues your decision to use or not use music to to use or not use a narrator all of these things snowball and they coalesce into a finished product which 
which as everyone knows is it's it's the the filmmaking process so it it is quite That's impossible it. to say i had no impact on the way this That's turned it. out because no matter how much you want to try and strip it down to the minimum there will still be factors that you personally controlled and chose and right. they they will affect the the product and the outcome and the perception of the audience and it's up to you as to how many of those you want to play with and and what yeah. you think the the final influence should be absolutely no that, that that's it and it's just enjoy that just enjoy it right just enjoy the fact that it is an adaptation which i'm not saying every filmmaker isn't trying to enjoy but i just don't like i don't like rules that are haphazard rules placed on on filmmakers it's so hard to make a movie that works right i mean i'll do one more sidebar on tony bennett talking about like people asking him different kinds of genres of music does he like one over the other he's like well people say that you know there's you know do i like hip-hop or bebop or jazz or classical or pop and this and that i go there's only two kinds for me there's only two kinds of music it works or it doesn't and that's the same thing for storytelling i don't care what camera you use I don't care if your budget was $500 million or $50, either, either you're engaging me as a storytelling storyteller or you're not. So as an independent documentarian, how are your documentaries typically funded? Yep. <laughs> um, independent. Uh, so let's see, let's go through the list. Uh, I've only made fat five and a half films, so five feature films and a and a um, short documentary. And four and a half of them were independently financed. One of them was financed from the outside. So uh, yeah, I I joke when I teach also that my process of making a movie is find subject, make movie, find money, not the right order. Find subject, find money, make movie better order. Um, I haven't always succeeded at that. Uh, mostly it's been find idea, find a little bit of money, start making movie, find more money, keep making movie, find more money, keep making movie. And it's exhausting and imperfect in its way, but I, I, if anybody hears me whinging, uh, feel free to not feel sorry for me. I, it's the process and, and the group, the good news again, lemonade out of those lemons is I make my movies, right? I get to I've always had Final Cut, um, you know, even with the outside funding, and that's everything. That's not just everything is with with journalistic integrity. It's everything for me to say, yeah, down to the last frame. That that's this movie. That's what I wanted to do with this movie. That's telling the whole story the best I could of this. I mean, we just watched. We just opened here in Los Angeles. And I had three other editors on Shot in the Arm and they all got to come together to see this screening in LA. And they all said, and I was saying, hey guys, congratulations to all of us. And they were saying, well, Scott, you did it. You brought it home because I ran out of money for all of them. <laughs> and I always finished my movies with me in the last, could be two weeks, could be three months, a little fine tuning and sanding down and things like that. So yeah, it's a process. So when you go to pitch to a, a potential um, funder, I mean, you obviously need some 
some product to show obviously the standard process to as i understand it storyboard first a bit maybe produce a a, a short introducing the the subject and an example of the the angle that you're going to take what what do your funders get out of this if you if you're making i mean i i don't know if if you are a, a full commercial enterprise or what how how does it work with you do you know do you say to the funders you know you're going to have a slice of of uh of the um the royalties or or, or whatever sure. what's in it for yeah. the funders sure it's not that complicated it's um a they know they're taking on a risk it's a it's an independent documentary production so <clears throat> there's no hiding from the fact that there is a good chance they might not get money back um and then there's a chance that it could become a little bit of a hit and we all make a, a little bit of money. Um, I am grateful for the fact that all of my films, uh, I've been able to pay back my funders. And then depending on the, the contract relationship, do they also get some of the profit as well? Um, and that I own a house with my wife and pay the mortgage and you know feed my kids and have a very, really special, beautiful life. So I'm, I'm grateful for, 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 for all of that. So yeah, the relationship with the funders is very simple. It just depends on how much they put in and what percentage they get back. Sorry, what do they get? Uh, how much interest they get back on their investment and what uh, what percentage of uh, of any of the profits, if any, do they get? Uh, sometimes I have funders. Sometimes I have people that donate through a 501c3 uh, nonprofit profit, a fiscal sponsor. So it depends on how the money comes to us. So it's a little bit different to the the big large scale sort of um what we might call the the industrial cinema of of Hollywood where there is a specific goal to hit some company benchmarks for profitability because you need to cover all your big overheads and blah 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 you are actually more interested in simply producing the documentary getting it out there funding it as it goes if necessary and the goal is primarily just to get the documentary made and get it fine-tuned to your to your preference so in in that respect you're you're actually freed up quite a bit because you don't have specific uh profit targets to hit you don't have investors and shareholders breathing down your neck you're you've actually got more creative freedom in that regard i think so that your primary goal is simply to get the documentary out there and not being so focused on these these other overheads and complications actually yes as i can from what you've said it does simplify the process a great deal that's right that is that's the good and the bad news of being an independent filmmaker it does simple it does keep it small and and uh, what do we say we're, we are lean and nimble um and uh and maybe sometimes we're a little hungry <laughs> so in your view what is the primary responsibility of a documentary maker? Mm, great. Um, it's similar to my definition, um, uh, an adaptation of the truth. So uh, it's similar that your responsibility is to tell the truth and equal to that, absolutely for me, equal to that is that you do it in a, with the greatest of storytelling skill that you can muster. Because if you just do it, if you, some people think that it's so honorable to be telling this documentary about this issue that, oh, it can be a little, it can, it can be a little boring 
or or that interview can go on a little bit longer and and I can cut to B-roll, which I hate that term. There's no such thing as B-roll, it's all A-roll. It's gonna be in the movie. They're better sure as hell be A-roll or, you know. So I can cut to a bush. I can cut to a, you know, tra- a driving shot in hopefully the city where the movie takes place. It's just distraction. No, 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 no. Use every tool you have available to you in the canon of cinema vocabulary, storytelling vocabulary, it's not just cinema, of storytelling magic to engage us and move us and keep us tracking with the story and hopefully come in for a landing. So it's both of those that you have a responsibility to tell the truth and be fair and decent, hopefully as decent as you can with everybody involved. And I say that as you can, because there could be people that you're very frustrated by or not telling the truth or doing damage to, to people or the world, um, but treat everybody with, with equal respect in terms of what is the truth. That's not equal respect with, in terms of what um, their, uh, their integrity, right? Because I'm going to tell the truth about their integrity as best I can. I don't have, it's not my fault if, they're not, don't have, if they don't have integrity or if they've lied or they've cheated or they've you know, abused some uh, a, a company or a society or an per, individual person. But I can treat them with the respect that I'm going to tell the truth. I'm not going to cheat to make it worse. So before we get to your latest work, can you just briefly mention your previous documentaries? Give me a, an overview of, of what they were about. Sure. Um, so again, it's only five and a half with, with Shining Arm. So the first one was called um, OT Our Town. So that's capital O, capital T, colon, Our Town. And that title comes from the uh, young people, sorry, I'll tell you the premise of the film. Uh, my then girlfriend and now wife has been teaching in uh, Compton, California, which if your listeners don't know, is an iconic um, neighborhood of Los Angeles known for the birth of hip hop and uh, quote unquote gangster rap. And it's supposed to be, you know, this scary neighborhood in Los Angeles. It is, it is the home of gangster rap. It has been the home of gang violence, but is also this beautiful community of people like any community trying to live the best life for themselves and their their children. She's been teaching there for 25 years. So only a few years into teaching there, this is all the way back in 1998, 1999, she wanted to start the first drama program there and, and without a stage and without money and without experience. And she was going to put it on in the... Um, in the uh, cafeteria, she did put her on the cafeteria and she chose the play Our Town. Your listeners may not know this play. It's one of the great American plays, one of the most produced American plays for its quality and the fact that it has very minimalistic uh, set. It's a lot of miming. So the kitchen is a table and chairs and then no other props. A window is are two ladders for two kids to look at each other through the windows of, their, of the second floor of their, of their house, things like that. So she knew, okay, it doesn't have a set. I can do that. <laughs> I can get a chair and a desk. And, and then the irony was that it's also set in the turn of the, the 20th century and a very white country community. So what is this play going to mean to Black and Latino kids in Compton in the turn of the next century? So we came to say that the subplot of the film was, is our town their town? And they gave us just all so much brilliance and soul and 
art and love and heartbreak um, that, yeah, it's a very, might, it still might, I'm whispering, still might be my favorite movie. It's just got so much love and heart in it that it's, it's kind of magical. Uh, my second film, I've talked about it quite a bit, uh, was called The Garden and this complicated struggle over the history of a community garden, the largest community garden in the United States in South Central Los Angeles. So I moved north uh, west from Compton towards my home in, in Los Angeles, in, in uh, the Silver Lake neighborhood of Los Angeles. And the, the community garden was born uh, out of a healing after the Rodney King, the verdicts, the riots related to the Rodney King verdict in Los Angeles. And it became brilliant uh, success story. Over 350 families, 14 acres. This is a 14 acres, so 14 soccer fields of, of a community garden. Usually a community garden in a city might be a quarter of an acre. It might be less than that. So this brilliant success. And then there became a struggle over who actually owned the land. Can the garden stay? Should the garden stay? Will the garden stay? And that one got nominated for an Oscar and was an incredible honor and um, changed my life in a lot of ways. Third film, Fame High a year to performing arts high school here in Los Angeles and was sort of an ode to the movie fame. Um, I want to live forever and which is a lot of fun and a year, a year at the school. So you really got to see like the incoming freshmen and the seniors go through the process of coming to and leaving the school. Um, and I call that kind of a documentary musical. It was oh, just so much fun and hard, 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 hard. I took a long time to edit. And the fourth one, Food Evolution, which we talked about a little earlier, a reset of the conversation on GMOs and my, my uh, inroad to defending and telling the full truth around science. And um, can I curse on your show, show sir? Okay. Um, uh, what is the acceptable, what should we accept as the correct amount of bullshit in our life? I don't know if I have a perfect answer for that, but I try to keep it as low as possible. And sadly, we're living in a time where people sell a lot of BS and it feels like we accept a lot of BS kind of like, well, I can't stop it or, or it goes to my tribe or confirmation bias and things like that. So it can't be that bad. And uh, I have other people agreeing with me, so it must be okay. I hate bullshit. I hate lying. I hate hypocrisy. And I try to go the other direction. And then I did a little short film in between food evolution and shot in the arm uh, called two Medusas, which was a very simple story of I can literally look out my window here and see the uh, see the uh, elementary school where both of my our daughters went and they have a Halloween con contest Halloween costume contest every year and two girls my daughter my older daughter Tessa came home and said Scott Scott she said Dad she said Dad you're not going to believe this Sylvie and Charlotte are going to be the same have the same costume for the contest they both want to be Medusa what's going to happen. So it was the greatest casting cheat in my uh, that I'll probably never come across again that I'd known these young girls who are now probably seven and nine since they were zero. So I had like these years of relationship, them being besties with my daughters to know them and, and are in trust with them. And then they gave us the goods of like, you know, competition. What does Medusa mean? And it was, it's a lot of fun. So two Medusas, uh, that was harder to find because uh, I never sold it, but uh, write me and I can send people a, a link. And I put it up on the interwebs every uh, October, usually for, for Halloween. And then we come to the one we're talking about uh, today, Shot in the Arm, which was a film I started in 
2019, when I was trying to figure out why the heck I was seeing a state of emergency around a measles outbreak in New York City, a state of emergency around measles in Washington State, pockets of measles outbreaks across Europe. And the first person I contacted was uh, Dr. Paul Offit out of CHOP, out of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. I'd seen him on a podcast, actually a podcast where during the podcast, you could hear anti-vaxxers banging on the window, trying to stop the podcast. And I asked him what's going on. And he basically said, it's, there are people out there that have come to be called anti-vaxxers who are spreading misinformation and disinformation about vaccines and scaring parents into not getting their kids vaccinated. And that's gonna lower vaccine rates. And if you lower measles vaccine rates, like many of these things, it's never a matter of if, it's a matter of when those uh, you're gonna see measles outbreaks. <clears throat> so we thought we had a pretty important film in that. And Paul Offit was generous enough to introduce me to Tony Fauci and Peter Hotez and other icons in the pro-health, pro-science side of this. But I also wanted to shoot with these so-called anti-vaxxers. So we filmed with the OG, Andrew Wakefield, whose fraudulent study and then a study that was published in The Lancet in England, um, thankfully was retracted, but it took almost 10 years to have it retracted, that he was the first to try and make a connection between the MMR vaccine, measles, mumps, and rubella, and it's possibly causing autism without any evidence. And in the end, we actually find out, and you see it in the film, he was hired by a law firm to go and find evidence of this, right? It was basically pay to play science. So we filmed with him and we filmed with Del Bigtree, who is, I'm sorry, I refer to him as sort of the used car salesman of the anti-vax movement is a very successful um, uh, online, I guess it was a YouTube show that then was taken off YouTube, uh, podcast, fake news show and ask him, ask him if anybody wants to ask Del Bigtree, hey, what do you do? Oh, I have a, I have a news show. Oh, okay. What are the subjects you talk about on your news show? Oh, let me think about that. Oh, it's all anti-vaccine. So is that a news show? Not really. I'm sorry. And he'll slip in a couple other things like anti-GMO and things like that. So, and then the top of the pyramid in the United States has become Robert Kennedy Jr., uh, the son of uh, Robert Kennedy, uh, the assassinated uh, senator and brother of John F. Kennedy, also sadly assassinated. And he's really taken advantage of that name to have a heavy influence on the vaccine movement. And now he is running as an independent to become the next president of the United States. And his polling numbers are way too high for comfort. And we hope the movie will help people see who he really is. That is wonderful. Thank you so much. And I really felt the passion for your early projects coming out there. It was was really great to see that, that I'm not sure how long ago uh, you produced them, but I can see that the the fire is still burning very strong for those for those <laughs> projects that came through very very clearly. Oh, nice! Yeah. <clears throat> I like them. They're my baby. They say you know they call them your your, your babies. Uh, they are they are uh, a little a little bit like children. These little pieces of art that you make. And again, I don't. I haven't made a ton of movies. Again, compared to somebody like Werner Herzog, whose output is kind of incomprehensible. But um, they're sturdy, right? So there's a term in Hollywood called cheap, fast, and good, choose two. And I'm not fast, but I try to make them, you know, good and reasonably priced. And I, and I, and I can stand by that. I can stand by my team that we made. They all hold up and I hope they'll hold up in time capsules because I don't make, I don't make trendy 
uh, movies. I make movies, I hope, about the human condition, about people. And just like any great literature or great films, yes, I just did say great around me talking about my own work. So forgiving the humble brag without the humble part, uh, we try to make great films. That's the whole goal. I don't try and make mediocre films. I try and make something that's going to hold up and, uh, and we sure hope they do. Just to circle back to funding, anti-vaxxers are likely to claim that your documentary was funded by Big Pharma or Bill Gates or some other figure they especially despise. So can you tell me how it was funded? And, and without giving too much away, perhaps you can suggest some size of the budget? Sure. It was funded completely independently, obviously starting with my own, uh, starting with my own money in 2019, um, just picking up a camera and going to the ACIP meetings, the vaccine meetings, uh, vaccination and vaccine meetings at the CDC in Atlanta and thinking that, okay, well, I'll get that scene and then I'll get a couple of those scenes and I'll put together a little reel and find money. And that did, excuse me, that did happen a little bit. Um, and then it was finding uh, sorry, we tried to sell it in 2019 to all the regular streamer outlets and uh, cable outlets and got a whole lot of important film really needs to be made, but not for us. That was pre-COVID. And, and then we tried to do the same thing again post-COVID. But in between that, I found um, independent executive producers to, to, uh, to give to either donate funds or or invest in the film, uh, we got a couple of small grants, and uh, and then of course you know continuing to put my own money, hopefully as little as possible, into it as we go along. But yes, there is uh, zero money from quote unquote big pharma uh, in the movie. And now on the other side of the movie, I have screened for big pharma, quote unquote big pharma. I've screened for pharmaceutical companies. I've screened at conferences where pharmaceutical companies might give money. And my answer to anybody that says that makes me shill is that's not the definition of a shill. That's called an audience. I stand by the, I stand by the uh, science of the film. I stand by the integrity of the film. Vet my film. I would be a terrible science communicator if I said, use the scientific method to determine the safety and efficacy and quality of vaccines and then said, don't use the scientific method to vet my film. Of course, vet my film, go for it. I have no problem with that. But I, I've, we worked our butts off to have the science be valid and the integrity of how we treated every human being in the film uh, with, with, the same, with the same integrity that it's, this is the truth of the actions that they took through the course of the story we're telling. In your documentary, you interviewed, as you as you mentioned, several prominent anti-vaxxers. How did they respond when you asked to interview them? And did they place any specific conditions on their participation? Excellent question. So uh, to begin with, I filmed with the antis by just showing up with a camera. So the first anti I filmed with was Del Bigtree at the CDC in June of 2019. So he goes to these meetings and he films scenes for his show to make it look like he's standing up against the man and he'll speak on the public comment mic, which is a brilliant part of our democracy that the CDC has a public comment mic. Come up and talk to us and say anything you want. And it goes on the record. He'll use that as a place to 
spread misinformation, disinformation, scare people, and also look like he's such a hero. So I asked him on the spot, can I do an interview with my name is Scott Hamilton Kennedy. I'm a documentary filmmaker. I'm making a film on uh, vaccines and these measles outbreaks, and you clearly have a strong voice in this. Can I talk to you? Same thing I would say to anybody, right? The truth is so much easier than bullshit. And, um, and he said, oh, sure. Uh, let's do an interview in the hallway. Let me, I can't remember what he said to, I'll be back in a minute. He went away, came back, saw my cameraman and sound people there. And I was away getting my questions or whatever it was, just like three minutes we're talking about, very fast. And he was getting a mic microphone put on him by my camera guy. And he, in that short amount of time, he'd look me up and he came back and he said, oh, you're working with Scott? He's a pro GMO guy. You shouldn't work with him. So A, he found out that I made Food Evolution and B, he's trying to talk my crew into not trusting me. Fantastic. Um, so that's one, right? That he, uh, I don't, I think Del Bigtree lives very much by the, there's the, the adage, there's no such thing as bad press. He will talk to anybody at any time, as long as the camera is on and he is in focus and there's audio to be involved. Robert Kennedy Jr. And then uh, Andrew Wakefield, the same thing, putting cameras in front of them at um, conferences and events like that. So I've never met Andrew Wakefield face-to-face. -face. I've had cameras at events where he talked and I actually was there remotely with like a 21-year-old production assistant with me in their ear, you know, doing sound and interviewing these people and holding it down. It's kind of amazing, this process that we can do with the technology. With Robert Kennedy Jr., he showed up at an event um, with cameras, same event in D.C. that I discussed. He spoke at a, at a church in Harlem spreading disinformation and, 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 and taking advantage of the Black community's valid cynicism about public health because of the horrible Tuskegee experiments, which, are, which, is, in the, which is in the film. So he takes advantage of that and sells them more <clears throat> disinformation. It's really brilliantly clever, but awful, right? To take advantage of somebody to manipulate them towards a goal that you want to go on. It's just, as Paul Offit says, the worst of the worst about Robert Kennedy Jr. taking advantage of a, a vulnerable mother who might be skeptical of vaccines and their relationship to their child being autistic and then manipulating that, just terrible. So uh, with him, uh, we filmed, uh, showed up at events and thought we were going to continue to do that. And, and I thought, well, is another crew going to do an interview with them? And maybe we can license that or use that footage. And my office said, hey, Scott, why don't we try the easiest way? Let's just ask. And we did. And he said, yes. Um, and uh, he was actually a fan of The Garden because that was more in my second film, The Garden, because that was more in his confirmation bias, his taste, whatever you want to call it that, you know, community garden and pro-environment. It's like, really, is, is anybody making an anti-environment film? So I, don't, I won't be trying not to be too snarky. And so I don't know if that's why he gave me access. Probably didn't hurt. And he gave me an hour. And we, he didn't walk out of the interview, but I did save the Samoa story of 2018 and 2019 for the end of the interview because I was pretty confident he'd never been interviewed about it. And that got very interesting. Oh, sorry. Oh, demands. Sorry. Uh, no one put demands until the interview with Robert Kennedy Jr. And he finished the interview. He was quite frustrated and nervous about Samoa. So he 
uh, was following to me to my car to, as I was packing up our gear and he came charging out of his house and he said, hey, hey, send me the footage and maybe I'll sign your release. What he didn't know is that I know my the, the laws around fair use and being a journalist and documentarian that you don't get to sit with somebody for five minutes or an hour and they spend that time and money to come to your house to do this. And then you get to decide, eh, no, I, you asked me a question that was a little bit tough. I don't want to be in your documentary. So I knew that I had the law on my side. I didn't say that to him. He said, because you, Scott, are a liar and a scam artist. He's a bully, right? So I didn't yell back at him. Thank goodness for therapy and meditation. Um, I said to him, I'm sorry, sir. Show me the lie. It's a fair enough question to ask back if somebody calls you a liar. And he says, oh, oh, don't play games. Again, bully, right? Uh, Jonathan Haidt, the psychologist out of NYU and brilliant author as well, introduced me to this wonderful term. Please use it over and over. A slur is not an argument. A slur is not an argument. He is all slur. We're living through a time where President of our United States, temp, previous President of our United States, lives on slur, right? And we're living through a time where people think, ooh, well, he said that horrible thing, like calling me a shill for, for big pharma. Slur, not an argument. You have evidence of that, that's an argument. So we have to distinguish between those things. And um, yeah, Robert Kennedy Jr. is a uh, the big failure at the slur is not an argument and a bully. He's just, just bully. He thinks that that's going to, you know, somehow win the argument. It's just lazy and, and terrible communication. Successful communication, sadly. But your uh, your account of your experiences with his men tracks perfectly with my perception of them from the considerable amount of material of theirs that that I've watched with great reluctance, I might add. But it, it has to be done because you, you need to know what these guys are saying to represent them correctly. And yeah, that's exactly what I have come to understand. Big Tree is sees himself as the crusader. He is he's there to generate outrage. He's there to be, you know, the voice of the ignored, downtrodden parents who have all suffered terribly, et cetera, et cetera. He doesn't care who he speaks to. He doesn't even care so much what he what he says, because <clears throat> he knows he can always walk some stuff back if he needs to. He is a media man. This is his wheelhouse and he knows how it works. So he's happy. He's confident to get up anywhere and say his stuff, no matter how outrageous, because he's confident he can either walk it back a bit or, or qualify it later. And even if he, if, if he doesn't have to, all the better. He got out there, he made noise, he generated some aggro and that's what he's there for. But yeah. Kennedy is a very different animal. He is a lawyer. He is a lot more careful with his language. He qualifies on the fly constantly. He uses weasel words. He relies on plausible deniability. And he wants to control the setting. And he wants to control the narrative. And he also yep. wants to control the way that his message comes out. So yep. I saw that very strongly in the interview, particularly with, with the Samoa issue. He kept retreating to well i didn't know much about this well, i didn't go and speak about to so there's a moment about this specifically well yeah. that had nothing to do with me well i didn't know about whatever else was happening 
he goes for that plausible deniability all the time. Oh, it was had nothing to do with me. I was there for other reasons, and you know, none of this is is related. Very, very careful. If that was Big Tree, he would have just gone full on. I was the voice of the people. All I'm doing is telling people what what all these mothers and and fathers are already saying. What what can I do but yeah. speak the truth, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Kennedy is far more careful. He plays the straight man. He's he's very cunning in the way he uses his language, and he does not want to be put in a position where his words can be used against him. So I I thought you you handled him extremely well, and certainly the frustration was very apparent as much as he tried to hide it because I could see him retreating further and further into that plausible deniability he relies on to escape yeah. the consequences of his actions. And I think that's the one thing I particularly despise about him. Oh, he, uh, I love the term weasel words. I never heard that before. <laughs> weasel words is great. <laughs> yes. I, I don't have anything else to say. You described him brilliantly i mean that was a detailed and uh well thought out uh, breakdown of of his his kind of evil genius right they have the term you know using your superpowers for evil and he he's become very very good at it um i hope the press will continue to press him on some of these things because he tries to dodge he tries to dodge with annoying terms like, oh, I'm just telling people to do their own research or, um, you know, uh, uh, I just, I'm just asking questions, right? Isn't it fair that I'm asking questions? And also the, one of the easiest ones to counter him on is he says it every single time he says it in the movie. And I asked, I did the follow-up, but I hope the press will continue with it is I'm not anti-vax. I've never been anti-vax. Somebody calls me anti-vax. They're trying to paint me into a corner and make me look crazy. But then I followed up and I said, okay, well, what vaccines do you think did well by in the history of mankind? He goes, oh, oh, that's a difficult question to answer. And I should have followed up with, I'm sorry, sir. Are you saying that there's no vaccine that you are pro? Because guess what that makes you? <laughs> if you aren't, if you are not anti-vax for giving the double negative, then you must be pro-vax on something. So yeah, he that one just please anybody listening that is going to interview him just stay on that and just get to the bottom of it. And then the second one for Samoa, I'm sorry, we're not we haven't gotten into the details of Samoa for your poor listeners, but the is hey, what happened with those two babies in Samoa? Like just stick with that. What happened? And what did you what did you communicate and what actually happened? So do you want me to do the quick version of Samoa? Yeah, my listeners will be familiar with the the Samoa story. Oh, I've I've done sure. an, an infographic on it, and it, it has come up in 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 the past. But yes, briefly, Kennedy went over to Samoa at the time of a measles outbreak. Measles vaccine rates had plummeted in Samoa, largely due to anti-vax misinformation spread by Kennedy and his cronies. And as a result, the outbreak had fatal consequences. Samoa very quickly acted as, as fast as they could to boost those vaccination rates back up again. But the impact was very severe and it left a lot of children very sick in addition to those who had died. And all Kennedy did was to walk away from the whole affair and wash his hands and say, well, it wasn't my fault. I didn't go there. 
to address this issue in, in particular. I was just there to help out the people and to, you know, to share my truth and to hear their truth and all those good things. Um, and I didn't know much about that, what, what else was going on anyway, which is a, a blatant lie. But of course, he phrases it very carefully. True. And he, uh, even worse is the letter. Did you know the letter that you saw in the movie? Did you know that letter he sent to the president, uh, to the prime minister? I did not. No, I, I was I was not familiar with the letter. So that letter, it's even worse because he says the, the outbreaks are not caused by lack of vaccines, but a possibly a faulty vaccine, which I don't, I, I haven't had a chance to follow up with him on that, which is like, what are you even, what are you even saying? The vaccines were being given, they were stopped being given because of fear around this, this tragedy mistake that happened where two nurses gave the MMR vaccine, two babies died. The nurses had mistakenly mixed in a muscle relaxant instead of saline water with the vaccine. Just a human error. Not nefarious, not nurses trying to kill babies, just a mistake. And uh, so that's the question I want to have for him. If, if you saw that two babies died of MMR and you committed, communicated that to your audience, I even get that. I even get that. I see uh, the the... The piece that I want I want to hear, David, is this one. Forgive the sidebar. Is what was Robert Kennedy Jr.'s first response? Right. So if you called him, some an anti-vaxxer from uh, New Zealand or Australia called Robert Kennedy Jr. And said, "You can't believe this. Two babies just died of the MMR vaccine after getting the MMR vaccine in in Samoa." What do you think his first response would be, David? His first response. His first response would be, that's gold. I'm going to go over there and, and take advantage of it. Excellent. I'm calling that his second response. His first response would have been, huh? You follow me? Because it's never happened. Yes, of course. Of course. Right? MMR has been around for decades. It, it's one right. of the, the safest, most reliable vaccines on the market. That's right. So that would have been, if we had a recording of that, that would be the greatest evidence of how much they manipulated this story. Because of course they would have said, what are you talking about? Huh? Because they're not, babies aren't dying from the MMR every day because it's safe and effective. So anyway, that's my little secret of like, if we could ever find that recording of the first time, then, and then the absolute moment too, was what you just said. And we see Del Bigtree doing it on his show and, and all of the above. But yes, watching him squirm during that interview um, is is quite remarkable. I I was I was work I didn't get to enjoy it in the moment um, because I was working very hard to make sure I had the right questions and I got the you know did I follow up correctly and just listening right really listening to what the next question should be. But oh my God in the editing room I mean you literally you don't you know you see him squirm but you also see him all finish a line and you can kind of see in his face like uh oh. That, that might have been the bridge too far. That might be the one that they really can see that I am full of the crap. Yeah, see, see Kennedy, unlike Big Tree, Big Tree's thing is I'm telling stories. All I'm doing is telling stories. What can, what else can I do? These stories are, are the truth. You've got to believe them because they, they're grieving upset parents. Look, it's their truth and I'm just communicating it, etc. But... Kennedy is is far more subtle. He and he also knows he doesn't need to convince people entirely, nor does he need to specifically win an argument. 
All he has to do is manufacture doubt. And that is precisely what he does. He manufactures doubt. He's not there to win an argument. He knows that in a stand-up knockdown fight with the science, there's no way he's coming out on top. All he needs to do is undermine it in the minds of the people who are less familiar with the science. And that sets the ball rolling nicely. He This also, again, gives him plausible deniability about the whole am I or am I not an anti-vaxxer thing. No, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I'm just all for safe vaccines. And I think there are some very serious questions we need to ask about the vaccines currently on the market. I'm just asking questions. We need to look into these things. Why is everyone upset when I say that we need to look into these things? Don't you want safer vaccines? And so it goes on. And that is what he does. He manufactures doubt. And that is a very powerful ploy in in the hands of of a of a skilled wordsmith as kennedy undoubtedly is yeah no you uh you know this uh subject very well sir <laughs> i you know, you know this subject very very well yeah i'm just a regular dad i've got no scientific or, or medical qualifications or training but mm. I was on my high school and university debating teams. I'm very familiar with rhetoric and logical fallacies. I know how to debate and I recognize good and bad arguments when I see them. And I'm also a, um, a pastor at my local church. So I've been doing public speaking since I was in my early 20s. So I'm familiar also with the tips and tricks of public speaking and presentation and the the way people use language to affect an audience so i recognize all of these things in in big tree and and in kennedy and i think that's helped me to gain some insight into the way they work and also convey to people why those techniques are are so dangerous so obviously at some point when anti-vaxxers see your documentary there's going to be some of them who claim you've misrepresented big tree and kennedy you must have selectively edited their interviews to take some of their words out of context. That's going to be less easy to do, I think, with Big Tree, because as we've established, he doesn't care so much about what it, you know, what he says and and how much people take of it. But Kennedy, as we as we know, is far more cautious on on that score. But how would yeah. you respond to the accusation that these men have been taken out of of context and potentially misrepresented? Show me the evidence is the, is the easiest one, right? So don't, again, slur is not an argument. They'll slur and say, oh, he's, he's he, he, you know, he had an agenda to, you know, to, to attack me and get me and, and trick me and just all slur. Show me the evidence that anything you said, I mean, it's your mouth moving. I think that's your mouth moving, Robert Kennedy. I think those are your words coming out of your mouth. I didn't like AI you. I didn't deep fake you. So outside of them saying I deep faked them, they, they've got nothing except slur. And they'll there are some of their listeners will and followers will buy into that slur because you know it's a bit, it's a bit of a cult mentality, right? That these people have become their leaders, right? They're truth tellers. You, you again know this so well. Uh, I'd love to hear you go further with it. Is, is is the brilliance of the way they've manipulated, we talked earlier about manipulating the truth of, of uh, Tuskegee and the rightful cynicism and skepticism, hopefully more skepticism than cynicism 
in the black community in the United States around public health. And they manipulate that truth into fomenting more fear and distrust and, and confusion. So another one they do is they flip the David and Goliath story, right? They take the David, the, this iconic story that we've all you know, grown up with and who the hell wants to root for Goliath, right? On paper, right? <clears throat> but just because you, Robert Kennedy Jr. are the David against the behemoth Goliath of quote unquote, big pharma doesn't make David right. And it doesn't make quote unquote, big pharma all evil, right? We, of course, we can point to mistakes in public health over and over again, but that doesn't mean that there aren't people that wake up every day for hundreds of years to try and do the best by the medicine that they're bringing to the public to make the world a healthier place. Do they wanna make millions of dollars as well? Heck yeah. That's a different conversation. We can have that conversation. And some of that is very, very imperfect. But I'm talking first about the truth of what they're, what are they creating and should we be considering uh, using it? And by the percentages, big, quote unquote, big pharma and public health has helped us live 20, 30, 40 years longer than we did a century ago, two centuries ago. It's incredible. Can you uh, let me know if there were any specific challenges that you faced while making Shot in the Arm? Well, the normal challenges of making any documentary, finding money, <laughs> um, not getting burned out because it's just hard to, to, to tell the story, uh, to figure out the story. But, you know, the pivot to COVID was a little bit of a bump, but in the end it became, you know, kind of lemonade in a don't mean that in a creepy way, but it became lemonade in terms of a story, that the story went from measles, anti-vax, public health, confusion, and the social contract was probably underneath there. I just hadn't found it yet in that story. And then with COVID, it really became about um, this, the social contract, which uh, I don't know, I'd love to hear um, if you guys have the same term um, in Australia. But the social contract being this <clears throat> sort of written and unwritten, um, you know, inherent uh, rules that we follow as citizens of a functioning society, right? That we won't drink and drive, that we'll pick up our garbage, that we won't, you know, uh, uh, scream fire in a crowded theater, you know, many, many different things. Again, and there's laws and then there's things that are just decent, things that should make you a decent citizen of the planet. I hadn't talked about the social contract since probably middle school, uh, maybe high school. And it was really through Karen Ernst's parents who were uh, lifelong conservatives, voted for Donald Trump twice, but also love science and believe in science and believe in public health and are grateful for these things um, that pointed out that there's the fragility of our social contract as part, as part of this. And some of these merchants of doubt are looking to make that more fragile. Don't think about your fellow citizen. Think about yourself, your child. They damaged your child. Don't, the, don't take the bait of them tricking you into thinking it's a social contract, which is shocking. Not too many people are quote unquote anti-social contract, but I have heard even Del Bigtree try and dance around, like don't let them use that. Like whose social contract? I, I just, I can't even go further with it. It's so thin and, uh, and, and manipulative. So yeah, those are some of the uh, 
some of the hurdles, but it was naturally part of the storytelling process. I'm so glad you mentioned the social contract because that is a very powerful issue in the context of vaccination and public medicine in general. In fact, it's a term I reference many times in, in my vaccine advocacy. I recently did a, an infographic about it um, to explain to people what the social contract is. And yes, it's a, it's a term we use here in Australia where the social contract is very highly valued. We mm -hmm. don't have the same powerful undercurrent of, I can only describe it as sort of a libertarian exceptionalism that, that seems to run through the American psyche, you know, at very much a, a base level. In Australia, there is a concept called mateship, where, whereby the community sticks together and looks after everyone. And the concept of mateship was forged by the Australian volunteers who fought in World War One and World War Two. All our soldiers for World War One were uh, were volunteers. They um, there was a referendum on whether or not government should have conscription, and the public voted it down, and the volunteers just turned up anyway. The Australian concept of mateship is one way, you know. In the trenches, you look after your mates, and that's how you will survive. And that concept got woven into the understanding of the social contract in the Australian psyche. So your friends are your, are your mates, and by extension, some of your mates' mates are your mates, and your neighbours are your mates in a, in a more general sense. And there is a very strong sense of community and looking after the, the, the public well-being. So anti-vax sentiment has been loud here but it has never been significant. Our vaccination rates are among the highest in the Western world. We reached a new peak for um, for measles. We got we hit 96% uh, vaccination rate for, for measles a few years ago, which is the highest in our, in our history. So it's, you know, I have the advantage of living in a, in a country where um, both of the, the two major parties are strongly pro-vax and both have introduced pro-vax measures in in state and federal legislation. So, you know, it's it doesn't have the same, uh, we, we don't have the same problems in that regard as, as you do in in, uh, in America. But yes, the social contract is is absolutely uh, a part of this. And I think it is a, a, a critical issue to start with, especially when you're talking to people who value very much the concept of interrelationships, which is how the anti-vax community works so you have the interrelationships you have the stories the parents talking to each other so what you need to do is work with that and reinforce to people hey if you agree that we have a responsibility to make sure that we look after our children and by extension it each other's children let me tell you how we do this in the provax community and how i can show you from history from the experiences of of the pandemic and even from the last few years of measles outbreaks or or, or maybe an, an RSV outbreak in, in a particular state or whatever, I can show you how that same social contract that you actually subconsciously rely on in your anti-vax community is used exactly the same way as us, except we follow the science. So I think that is a good point of common ground to find now some anti-vaxxers well as you said will reject that they will reject that there is no social contract i didn't sign a social contract when i came out of the womb nothing to do with me and to that i say to people well you are free to find 
you know, to leave this society and find or establish a new one where there is no social contract or just live out on your own and see how that works out for you. But the bottom line is, in this society, there is a social contract that is an expectation, and that's what we've got to got to live with, you know. And sometimes yeah. the social contract means I have to do things that I don't think are particularly necessary, but, you know, that's fine. It's It's not a big deal, and I would rather err on the side of public health, put it that way. Beautiful. So I have a small follow-up for you then, sir. Mm. If you Congratulations, Australia, on those amazing vaccine rates. Why do you have this wonderful podcast if your country's vaccine rates are so high? Well, because social media exists and social media is universal. If I go out on social media and I restrict myself solely to Australian sources, I won't find a huge amount of pushback on social media about about vaccines. I'll find the usual crazies and I know where to find them. But they aren't the people influencing everyone. The biggest voices are in the US and to some extent the the UK and Canada, but particularly the US. That's where the biggest voices come from. And the US has a powerful influence on Western culture. And I have, a, as a parent, I have a strong interest in ensuring that that influence does not corrupt what we have here in Australia. And also, I want to try and help the fellow Provax people in America and in the UK and in Canada to push back against the anti-vax sentiment that they face in their countries. And social media being the blessing and the curse uh, that it is, it's yeah. both, you know, the worst place to be and the best place to be for this kind of work. And I am passionate about public health. I'm passionate about vaccines um, because it's one of the simplest ways that we can improve and protect public health. And it is something that I can be involved with as just a regular dad. And so, yeah, that's how I formed my little nonprofit organization, the Vaccination Station, and got stuck into it and started doing my thing. And I've been running this for... Um, well, since 2019 now, since August 2019. Yeah. And, and yeah, that's, that's my motivation. It's pretty simple. It's the same kind of motivation, ironically, as, as the anti-vaxxers would claim that they have, but I just yeah. want to do my part and help out in, in whatever way I can. So, so did Samoa start your journey in a way? No, um, okay. I, as someone who enjoys debating, simply encountering anti-vaxxers on and off on on the internet and then increasingly as they they found a voice on social media and arguing with them just because i'm i i suffer a bit from someone is wrong on the internet syndrome sometimes i can't help <laughs> myself <laughs> yeah i've been doing this for many many years informally just you know as a frustrated parent and in 2019 i decided i'd had enough i thought Surely I can do more. Surely I can actually make a go of this, do something significant. I was inspired by some excellent Facebook pages that I'd seen. And I was starting to see some really good science communicators. And I thought I can reach out to these people, amplify their voice, amplify more my voice through theirs. And I really need to sit down and, and start getting serious about this. And, and maybe I can actually have a bit more of an impact. And I've been fortunate enough to speak to some, some really great people. I've, I've interviewed Dr. Paul Offit and, and many other, you know, really great people in the vaccine space. I'm familiar with uh, Karen Ernst and Voices for Vaccines and some of the other orgs that I've spoken to and um, their staff and representatives that I've interviewed. And yeah. 
yeah, it's tremendously encouraging to be able to draw on their their resources and talk to them and and share experiences. But yeah, when I realized that, you know, this was actually going to become effectively my my full-time job, then uh, yeah, it, you know, it's a passion project and as they say, if you find a job you like, you'll you'll never work a day in your life and that's just how I I've I've come to feel about it. <laughs> That's funny. So we have something else in common that we both started yeah. in 2019. Before absolutely. That's, absolutely. That's yeah. So my interest started long before then, but then I thought, you know, I, I can communicate pretty well with people. I understand the importance of critical thinking. I got sick of having to type out the same responses again and again to people. I thought, right, I need to put <laughs> together some memes so I can just chuck up a meme with the basic facts. And then I thought, well, what I do, I do some infographics as well. And I'll put links at the bottom of the infographics so people can see what my what my sources are. I have now yeah. produced literally hundreds of infographics. Um, Ooh, I want to see these. Um, I can give you a link to to these on on my website. Great. And I also speak to young people. I give classes occasionally to to um, young people at my church about critical thinking and and this kind of thing. And I think that is a, another aspect that's been sorely neglected teaching people how to understand a good argument and a bad argument, what makes them, what breaks them, teaching them how to think critically, how to question themselves and how to question other people. It all goes hand in hand. And I think that's a, a really vital skill for people to have. Essential, essential. That's the long throw of what we want the film to do is you just put it so, so beautifully. That's if this film could help, with that same mission, um, I would be so, so honored. Well, that, that really brings me to my, my final question, which you've already started to answer. What do you hope to achieve with your documentary? First on the micro level and then the macro, if you like. Sure. <clears throat> so on the micro level is to continue to build our core audience of people like yourself, uh, science believers, public health, people that believe and respect public health and critical thinking, um, rational thought, decency, the social contract, all that uh, in the United States. And, and obviously we'd be grateful to do it around the world. It's gonna really be about how much time we have to, to do that, but I would be grateful for uh, all support from you and your listeners to continue to get the word uh, out there. Um, and then the, the, the macro, as you said, we have talked about is it, it's education, right? If, if in, two years, five years, 10 years, we've, we've seen this film, I'd be honored if it was this and Food Evolution because they're, they're pretty fascinating double feature um, or, or used in, in, independently, uh, used in, in, in uh, education as a warning of the dangers of misinformation and disinformation and, and, and merchants of doubt and, 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 and merchants of, uh, of lying, Renee. Um, and then the importance of rational thought, the social contract, the uh, uh, the, sci the scientific method, um, and uh, it, I would just be an incredible honor to see that that was being used because that's really the only that's the place that would put us out of business, right? So if we if we didn't need to defend science because by the percentages the the world is so the citizens of the world are so well trained in rational thought that they just less often are swayed by BS. Um, that would be a beautiful world to live in. 
Scott, thank you again. I really appreciate that you've given me so much of your time. This has been an immensely fascinating and satisfying interview to conduct. So thank you again. And perhaps we can talk again sometime in the future when maybe you you do another documentary on, on a subject that uh, touches on both of our worlds. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure.